So as we come to our study, not only of God's word, but also Lord's Day 2 this morning, maybe you're confused even in singing that third stanza of the song that we just sang. See and consider how I love your law, your precepts, ways, even the verse before. I'm disgusted by those who sin. And yet that next line, which puts it all into perspective again, Lord, give me life according to your love, your steadfast grace. Because as we consider, if we want to try to consider our own faithfulness and holiness, we recognize I need your grace. I need your work. And it's because we're sinners. The law of God tells us that. We are inclined toward all evil, inclined to hate God and our neighbor. And so what we need then is to be embraced and welcomed home. We need the work of grace to be in and among us. And so as we consider then a story of misery today, we come to that story perhaps, and it isn't the only one. There are plenty of them that we could turn to in the scripture, certainly David in his own misery that we've read in our assurance of forgiveness this morning. But we turn in our Bibles this morning to the the story of the Good Samaritan, to that parable. And so let's take our Bibles and turn to Luke 15. Luke 15, where we'll take for our text, verses 11 through 32. And so this comes after not long ago, a couple of weeks ago, looking at the parable of that lost sheep and that lost coin, that recognition again of that which is precious, that is sought after and cared for. And now here is the third of those stories of the lost things. And so children, while we call this the parable of the prodigal son, Many other Bibles and other studies will talk about this being the parable of the lost son. And so he is sought and found in a different way, but we also have to stop and say, which one is the lost son? And so let's hear that as we read God's word this morning. Luke 15, beginning at verse 11, we pay special attention to the reading of God's word because it is that, the very inspired, infallible, and errant, powerful word of God. And he, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields, his fields, to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and the fattened cow, the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called to one of the servants and asked what these things meant, and he said to him, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. 
His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I've never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. We also take a look again at that summary of that word in Lord's Day 2. You can find it in the back pages of the Trinity Psalter on page 872. Eight seventy two question and answers three, four, and five. And so as we come to that first part, needing to know already in question and answer two, what do I need to know? How great my sin and misery are. How do you come to know your misery? The law of God tells me. What does God's law require of us? Christ teaches us this in summary in Matthew 22, 37 to 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the greatest and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Can you live up to all this perfectly? No. I am inclined by nature to hate God and my neighbor. Thus far, our confession. Our Lord and Heavenly Fathers, we come before this familiar parable today. We come before it in all kinds of different ways. In understanding our place in the story, in understanding the grace of the Father, in understanding the great need of the Son to be received again, our own inclination to act more like older brother and less like celebratory, one who celebrates in the midst of the wonder of grace. And so, Lord, wherever we are this morning, we pray that, again, you would meet us there, but not leave us there. That, Father, the words that I speak would not drive your people away or harden them in their hearts, but that they would receive that word, those seeds that are planted, that they would grow and bear fruit. And that, Father, you would bind us together in a shared mission and purpose in the same. That, Lord, in the wonder of what you have granted to us in grace, might we, yes, know misery, might we make it known, but might we also make Christ known, in whose name we pray. Amen. A congregation beloved of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, misery loves company. It's totally false. It's the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard people say. And really, even if we wanted to say misery likes company or is cheered by company, the reason that people say that is if misery has company, then none of us have to be miserable. Or move that farther from there and say, none of us has to think about our misery. Because if everybody is the same and dealing with the same things or ignoring the same things, then we never have to deal with misery. We never have to deal with root causes. We just continue to move along. Or consider someone else's misery to be greater than our own. But none of us, I would think, if we were honest with ourselves, wants to be miserable. Even as we hear that word in our confession this morning, we say, none of us wants to be there in the parable that we've heard. 
None of us wants to be in want. No food dealing with the pigs longing to eat what they eat. Miserable. And that misery then ultimately is increased when we don't know why. Why am I miserable? Some of you have talked about having health concerns in the past and you keep going to the doctor and they rule out some other things, but you're never given that answer. And, and you just come and you're like, can you just tell me something so we can deal with it? Right? We hate that in-between. We don't want to be patient. Tell me the problem and how I deal with it. But yet, even amongst how God works with people, Like when we hear that first question today, how do you come to know your misery? We hear that and we say, there it is. The law of God tells me, here it is. But but what's the verb there? How do you come to know? That very rarely is it an all at once. I mean, there are certainly things, even in the causality of what Jesus says in this story, where we could look at this young man, this prodigal, and say, here's why things are messed up. Here's why you're far away from where you need to be. But that isn't always the way it is. Because as you advance in the story to the older brother, there's all kinds of distance and separation from God there too, even though he looks a lot more like maybe a lot of us. And so maybe you can handle your misery for a time. Maybe, again, you hang out with other people more miserable. Maybe you just ignore it. Those things will just take care of themselves. But it's not going to happen. No matter the part that you resonate with in the parable, no matter how you come to understand that misery by way of that law, where you're at now and where you continue in that progressive sanctification, the ways in which you know you've fallen short of those two commands to love God and neighbor, the more that you wrestle with that inclination to hate God and my neighbor. Sin needs to be remedied. That sin has to be recognized and it has to be remedied. Misery must be known, but it has to be known as the thing we need to be delivered from. Because as a people who love to self-medicate or play Dr. Google, we want to figure it out and we don't want a doctor and we don't want somebody to, I need a great physician. I need a loving father. I need a faithful savior. I need the surgical precision of the Holy Spirit to do that work in me. But again, recognize that it's going to be process. And that can be my frustration as a pastor. That can be the frustration of elders when we seek to shepherd well. Why don't they get it? Why don't they understand? I mean, we've told them three times already. Why? We say that with our kids. Why are you still living this way? Why are you straying? You were raised better. You know better. It's process. Sometimes it's long game. I think of the father in the parable and think, we don't know how long. Jesus doesn't say that. How long did he wait? How long was he longing? How long was he looking? But he was. And so we wait. We learn something of God and the wonder of how he is 
dealing with our misery also. And so to live and die in the joy of the comfort of Christ, we must be brought to know how great our sin and misery really are. It's a very simple theme this morning. And we hear it in the context of this parable that Jesus tells, this story. And so that knowing in that process is our process this morning. And so we need to consider then misery's explanation. And we see that in the telling of the son and the choices that he makes in verses 11 to 16. We see it in misery's summation. So now that he's come to that spot of recognizing what it is and sees an understanding of not only the remedy but where he needs to go, now we see the summary not only of what misery is but also what it needs to work. But then we still have to be brought back to misery's inclination, that last Q&A of the Lord's Day. Because you're still dealing with understanding we, we can't call what the son has done not sin, We can't call how the older brother is living not sin. And so we have to interact with our own hearts on both ends of what that is. But it starts then first with that explanation of misery. Because before we get to how do you come to know misery, misery only comes because something was good before. There would be no comparison. If everything is always miserable and never good, you wouldn't know what good is. There's no comparison point. And so for us, and we'll hear more of it next week, the Lord willing it, did God make things this way? But there was a time where things were good, very good, perfect. That's how man has been created. And not only were we, but that creation that is given to Adam and Eve as a gift, all of it is gift. And so James picks up on that language later on when he reminds us that we receive every good and every perfect gift from the Father. And that's the setup here in the parable. Verse 11, there was a man who had two sons. Here is a father. Here is a father who has cared. Here is a father who has provided. Here is a father who has given good gifts to It's true in the story Jesus tells here. It's true in the story that Jesus tells here. Every good thing, every perfect thing. And yet in sin, why misery comes is because we love the gifts, but as sin works, we distance ourselves from the giver. That's sometimes a struggle we have with ungrateful kids, right, who, who just come to mom and dad when they need something, and there isn't relationship, and they'll go off, and we feel like we have to do it again and again and again and again until we recognize that that's what we do with our Heavenly Father again and again and again and again. We desire the gifts, yet our hearts remain far from the giver. We seek to distance ourselves from him, and that's the truth then of the younger coming. I mean, the disrespect, imagine you going to your parents saying, hey, uh, you haven't passed away yet, but can I have my inheritance now? What a terrible thing. What an awful thing. But here's the one, give it to me. Give me what's mine. This is my right. Give it to me. Give it to me now. Give me my share. Give me the gifts, but let my life be separate from you. 
Let me live the life that I want to. Let my life be separate from the giver. And so it's what brings us to the first bit of misery's explanation. If you want to tell somebody about their misery, it's this. The road to misery leads away from a good father. In the choices that you make, in the decisions that you're coming to, if you look at that from the plain road map, the orientation that God's word gives you, if this is taking you away from him, that is a road to misery. It's not going to end in a better way. And so here is this son who comes and gathers up all that is his, half of the father's possessions. And he goes off, as we know, and spends his inheritance. How does it say again? Squanders it in reckless living in the land of Vanity Fair. At children, back in the day when Disney movies were still on those like rectangle things called VHS tapes, I would watch those movies with my sisters as we would drive from New York to Michigan. And we had a VCR in the car and the little tiny TV that you all fought over anyway. But oftentimes we would watch some of those classic Disney movies. And the one that I really loved, perhaps more sometimes, is Pinocchio. And so that becomes that same story, right? Of someone who wants to be a real boy, who wants that change and yet goes off. And runs off with the boys and lives and lives it up. And then he becomes a donkey. He can't figure it out. He's moved away from Geppetto. He's left Jiminy Cricket, that which serves as his conscience. And so how much worse for this young man who goes off and lives the life of a donkey? And yet it's worse than that because he has shown himself to be a pig and he lives now among the pigs. And he can't figure it out. He squandered and spent an inheritance. But what should that bring him to? What will that ultimately, no matter how long that process is, and in a day and age of the evils of gambling and how completely upside down so many young men and young women are in our state even now because of terrible laws? Let's live it up. Let's get rich quick. Let's go. I have no job, but I'm going to hit the Powerball. I know it. I'm going to keep spending recklessly. I'm going to give my life to alcohol. I'm going to give myself to substance. I'm going to give myself to all the things that shine in this world. It's misery. And it's one in which the father let his son go to. He splits his assets. He gives it to him. Perhaps even there, and we know in our father, understanding that even in giving good gifts, but also in having them be squandered, what are we brought to? the end of our means, and the end of ourselves. And as parents, those that I've sat with, who have watched their kids come to that point, and there's nothing we can do, and there's nothing we can say, and you can't make it plain, and you just want to take that hurt away, but you can't. It's 
and yet they have to get there. And so in the text it says, he began to be in need. And we rush and say, well, he's out of money. No, he's been in need for a long time. He was always in need. And so that, children, is the purpose of the law. And why we hear it week after week after week, even if you've memorized it already, what you're hearing there is your need. The law should serve for us not to have to go out here and have those experiences, some weird rumspringa of which we do the world thing and we come to the end. No, 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 no. The law shows you if this contrary to this, if you're going to live a life opposite to this, all there is is misery. If these are the choices you make consistently, all you arrive at is misery. And not just for you, but it ripples to the effect of your family and the community, to everyone. How do you come to know that need? The law of God tells me. Because the law of God tells me who my father is. And it reveals to me his character, his value, his beauty, his holiness. It tells me who I am. It tells me that I'm not holy. That I have a need that I can't meet and that I can't fill. That law tells me what I've lived for. That I've lived for sin and self and it brings me shame because my father has shown me who he is and I have lived for less than that. It tells me of my guilt and it reveals to me what my true deep longings are. Those things that separate me from him and the things that I have listened to to run away from him rather than to him. And that kind of explanation of the law, even here as we read it, longing to be fed, but no one gave him anything. Completely at the end of himself, end of his means, and wondering, what is this life? And what am I going to do? That explanation of the law ultimately destroys us. Because I know that it's my sin. That's what this son comes to. And that's what we all have to come to in acknowledging our sin and misery. It's my sin. My sin makes me miserable. My sins make other people miserable. Sin itself as a category makes all things miserable. so that we'll deal with it. And not deal with it like put up with it. Because we're miserable, dead, and trespasses, and sins. And so, as those who have squandered his gifts, the only possible solution could be restoration to a right relationship with the Father. That's the only way. And in the pride of sin, that's what you see. I'm not going home. Oh, you don't know what I said to my dad. You don't know what I did to my mom. You don't know what the church said about me. But you've got nothing. And so in returning, you have nothing to lose. You have everything to gain and nothing to lose. 
And so we're brought to this explanation to know there's nothing we can bring to the Father. And that was the point. It was all his to begin with. And he can receive us again. But instead of continuing to distance ourselves in shame or in pride or in wantonness, I need him to work in me and work in that word and work in the reality of who my father is and his son to be driven back, to seek mercy and to call out for it on the basis of who he is. And so that's the cool bit in that second point in mercy's summation in verses 17 to 24 of being able to see in very condensed form that journey, that process. Because again, it's not immediate. Oops, yeah, this is what I did. I just got to go back to my father and he's going to... No. That here really is the process and prospects for us of entering into the brokenness of others, the miserable state of others, and being able to disciple. Of continuing to bring them the gospel and the reality that this life leads to misery that there's a better way, that his name is Jesus, that there is a gospel that can remove all of our sin and shame and guilt and restore us again to goodness and glory and truth. That's what we're doing here. It's what we're equipped here to go do. And so the beauty is that God has already begun his work in this man, right? Because what does it say in verse 17? But when he came to himself. He doesn't figure it out on his own. He comes to something that's given. He's finally able to see his experience. He's able to see his choices. He's able to see all of it. And he comes to himself. It's a gift of God. That his coming to the end of himself is a gift of God. That God giving his law to broken people like you and me is a gift of God. It's his gift. The law brings conviction of brokenness. It opens our eyes again. And yes, I'm dead. So that still has to be dealt with. Yes, I'm brought to brokenness and famine and separation and lack and need and helplessness. But I finally know why. That's the wonder of the story. It was never about my stuff. It was never about what I wanted to do. It was never about God was using the circumstances. And we could go around this room this morning from very, what we would consider insignificant sins, there aren't any children, they're all significant. But to those ones where we come and say, my life was given to alcohol and drugs and I left my wife and I lost my job and I, right, like the testimony stories. Each of us would have one. Each of us in Christ would have one. To be able to speak in all of those same terms, to speak about our deadness and be able to share then what misery is really all about and how God is using it. 
And so again, the thinking and action of the prodigal is the unfolding of that summary. Cliff notes of a journey that takes a long time. And we congregation, we have to be willing to think long game. To be patient. To recognize that as much as we'd like to work with someone for one or two or three sessions and now all of a sudden they're fully downloaded with Reformed theology and ready to read Bavink in their spare time, we're going to have to spend a long time just getting someone to the wonder of the beauty of grace. And so what does that look like? It's six parts in our text. If you're taking notes, the first is this. My father is good and I am not. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Look at how my father treats those who are not a part of his family. Those that are his workers. Look at all of that. And I'm not. Look how I've treated him. Look how I've separated myself from him. Look at how I've taken all that he's given me in goodness and dealt with it in sin and selfishness. The second part is coming to acknowledge that guilt and that place of humility. I am not worthy in and of myself to be called your child. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Doubling down in verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. There is a proper posture. I am not worthy. I am not deserving. But until I'm brought there, that's really saying, I have nothing. I have no good thing apart from you. To the third part of being made known to know misery, which finally drives him to take step after step of that journey back to the Father. And what is he brought before? Shame? Criticism? Took you long enough, son. Disgust, continued separation. He's been brought, even in his mind and his heart, before the goodness and righteousness of the Father, and step by step draws nearer to one who is kind and compassionate and patient before one who has and always will have a heart of love for his chosen children. To be brought forthly to what? My misery, hear it children, must work confession. I've sinned. I've sinned in heart and soul and mind and strength. I've sinned against God and my neighbor. I've sinned. And so you are called this morning. Not just the lost sinner in the pew today, but all of us as lost sinners. We are always called back to that in this process. I must repent. We go out in the mission of Christ calling people to repent. That they would know their sin, that they would know their misery, that they would hear an understanding that there is brokenness and lack and famine and separation. And that the only way back to the Father is believing in who He is and what He has done for us in His Son by the power of His Spirit. That's it. That's the Word. 
so that we can say in the most beautiful and joyful tones like David did, my Father receives and restores. Always. Always. Not just when we haven't messed up super bad. Always. Every bit of repentance, every bit of remorse, every bit of turning away from that sin and coming to him again, he receives and restores. Did you hear it? He arose and came to his father, but while he was what? Still a long way off. He hasn't gotten all the way there yet. He hasn't come in all of his knowledge yet. He hasn't come in all of that heart commitment yet. He's still not there yet. And the grace of God runs to him. Runs to him. And embraces him. The father saw him and felt compassion and embraced him and kissed him. He received himself again. I know you're in process. I know you're getting there. But I love you. And I love you enough to walk with you. And to go on that roller coaster of up and down until you are brought again in full relationship to me. Because he rejoices in it. My father rejoices always. The very heavens rejoice over what? Over one sinner who repents. And he's a far way off, but he rejoices. And so, yes, the Father has revealed His holiness and standard so that the broken would be humbled, so they would return with no hope in themselves, knowing no way to help themselves, so that they would fall down before Him in humility, calling out, forgive me, remove my guilt. And the Father says, I will do better. Kill the fattened calf, bring the best robe, bring the ring, bring the shoes, bring the party. Celebrate this. Because this is my child. Because this is the one that I have given my son for. So I need to know that misery to be driven there. But yet I don't. Because as we sit here, many of us Dutch Reformed kids and now not so much kids, we're still struggling with that inclination in the last point briefly. Because we're still inclined to think that that misery doesn't affect us or just really broken people or it's not serious as I think it is or we think of it as something we can deliver ourselves from. But that reality has to land for us today. That I am inclined by nature, as the confession says, to what? To hate. (laughs) And so we've seen it in the prodigal. We're quick to understand that. The prodigal is inclined to sin and misery. He's inclined to unrighteousness, to hating God and hating neighbor. It's seen very clearly in his outward works. It's the inclination that is ours from the moment of our conception. We are those raised with so many undeserved blessings, yet we continue to despise the giver of these blessings in thought, word, and in deed. But that older brother in the story is just as inclined to sin and misery too. 
to self-righteousness, to hating God and neighbor, to hating his father and inward bitterness. And it's the inclination which spills out of our hearts. Look at all I've done, Father. I should be more blessed than my brother who lives wantonly. So many blessings. And so the father is kind and not only to run and meet the prodigal, if he's the one in this story that is that, but also to walk with his older brother and to say what? To go out and to entreat him, to plead with him, to hear those complaints, to hear that bitterness. And he says, I'm glad that you've been here, but you don't know me. You serve me, but you don't know me. You serve me, but you don't celebrate with me. And what does he say? It's the most slaying line, perhaps, in the whole thing. All that is mine is yours. All that's mine is yours. You had everything, and yet you've walked around here in bitterness saying you have nothing but service to a tight-fisted father who keeps things from you. And hear this clearly, congregation, it's the first lie. It's how Adam and Eve lived. You had everything, and yet you complained and went after something that you thought you didn't have. And so in such inclination, both ends of it, we need to be brought back into the presence of God. And that's why we come to be brought again before his word, before his law and his gospel. The means by which we return and restored. Why? Because the dead are made alive and the lost are found. And the father rushes to return to both kinds of lost children to draw near them that they would draw near him in repentance and faith, to embrace them both and welcome them in to his love and work to come in and celebrate in receiving them in the person and work of his son in the celebration of grace. And so we know our misery and our, our inclination to sin because the law tells us. But we also know our God and his intention to save because the law tells us. Children, how does the law start? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. I am. I am he who brings you out and brings you in by my promise to myself. And at that point, Israel had a bit of a journey to get to that place, right? And that's the journey of salvation and sanctification that we're on as well. And so, brothers and sisters, certainly know your misery today. But in that process, even as you're watching someone else who's continuing to grind through those things, be near to them recognizing what God is working. That we pray that when they are brought to the end of themselves, they will be brought to a Father who rushes to them to receive them in compassion and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word to the wonder, Father, of that which you are working. To our misery, Father, which makes plain to us 
the struggles of this life, the hurts, Father, the pains, the sorrows, and brings us to the end of ourselves that we would find all that we are in you. And so, Father, we pray, as we draw near to those who are hurting and struggling, Father, that we will be mindful of that process that you are working in us. So, Lord, we ask that as we give our offerings this morning for the Institute for Reformed Biblical Counseling, Father, as they seek to speak that message into the hearts of those who are hurting, Father, may sinners be brought to you, and may that celebration in heaven continue to be very much real, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.